Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Friends, this is the last podcast that I got to record in person before the worldwide coronavirus pandemic, if you've heard of that, uh, forced us all inside and uh, forced me to record remotely. But it is still about death. (laughs) But it is about the kinds of deaths we like engaging with and reading about. That is the deaths in crime and mystery narratives, And I've been finding that these sorts of deaths, as well as the ones in horror narratives, uh, and our vantage points on them have become more valuable than ever. uh, And they become sustaining in a certain way because they've given us an opportunity to think about and engage with death and fear Uh, without the attachment to the kind of panic that we might be feeling about the deaths that are going on uh, in the world right now or that we're, you know, afraid might happen to us or people we love. To that end, what a great person to talk to. Um, (laughs) I I can't think of almost anybody better, really, than best-selling crime writer Liz Nugent. Liz lives here in Dublin. She's the author of four fantastic crime novels. The first one I read was Lying in Wait. Um, It's a tense and tragic thriller. Uh, It evokes Patricia Highsmith, who I love, and the films of Rainer Werner Fassbinder, who I also love, Uh, but it has a gesture and style all its own. And then I consumed the other three as quickly as I could. Um, I wanted to inhale them, and that includes her latest, uh, Our Little Cruelties. For some information on how to get those books, um, links to the audio versions, as well as all the people that we talk about in the show, because uh, we do talk about quite a bit of uh, other writers and artists, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib for the show notes. Um, and that's available to everybody, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. On this episode, we talk about death and murder, of course, but we also talk about who we view as bad guys and how we form our hopes for justice around who we view as bad guys. We talk about Patricia Highsmith and Jeffrey Dahmer and Donald Ryan. <laughs> Donald Ryan's a Irish author, not to tack him on right after Jeffrey Dahmer's name. Very different people, I'm sure. Uh, We talk about how we tie tragedy to joy and pleasure, why we identify with horrible characters, and we talk about the difficulty of dealing with bodies, whether they're dead bodies or our own bodies, uh, living bodies, and our thoughts about them. In some ways, this episode feels like it's coming a little bit from a different world. We talk about coronavirus uh, as it's just starting. There were just a couple, I think maybe one or two cases in Ireland at the time, and it hadn't sort of overwhelmed us. But one of the uh, one of the casualties, I guess we could say, of the coronavirus is uh, the all the works of art that were scheduled to come out uh, right around this time. And one of those works of art is uh, Our Little Cruelties, which was scheduled to come out on the 26th of March still did come out. Um, It was released just as the pandemic is beginning. And I think if I were a writer who had something coming out, I would be a bit heartbroken um, to have it consumed in that rush of news. 
In fact, today, March 31st, the day that I'm posting this, was set to be uh, Liz's book release party here in Dublin. I was very excited to go to the Gutter Bookshop and just talk to people about what a great writer Liz is and how good the new book is and how good all her books are and just have those conversations. And since that party was canceled, I hope that this episode serves as a sort of smaller audio celebration of the book. If you need the company of a page-turner in this moment, uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better set of novels than Liz's for that. So you can still get them, obviously, on Amazon. You can also get a lot of them on Audible. Again, you can find links to those uh, in the show notes. Uh, and as far as the show itself goes, I just want to say to all of you who support on Patreon, uh, I am deeply appreciative of your support and your continuing support at this time. I know a lot of you might be dealing with your own uncertainties and fears and anxieties, and I know since this show has value to you that uh, it's really, you're demonstrating that by contributing and supporting the show at whatever level you can. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, for anybody that doesn't support the show or doesn't know uh, how to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. You can sign up, you can contribute at any level that you want. So it could be $3 a month, it could be $10 a month, whatever you feel comfortable doing because it's the only stream of income that's sort of regular and that supports all the artistic work that I'm up to. And I want to say also that I noticed that people were still giving and actually uh, giving in greater numbers. And I really wanted to give back to everybody that's doing that. So to that end, I've been giving uh, something called Nobody's Together, the virus sermons, every single night at 6 o'clock Ireland time. So it's uh, the morning for people on the west coast of the U.S. and so on and so forth. Each day uh, I give, uh, it's an, an informal sermon. I just call it sermon because I think that there's something about the theological urge right now of our times. Uh, so I like that word for it. But basically it's just me talking for 15 to 30 minutes about something that has to do with our weird moment related to this pandemic. And uh in a way to help people stop being passive spectators where they feel like they're just in the sway of things into being curious about it, taking an interest in the world, being active participants in some ways of the way that the world is going as we emerge from this or as we just sit at home even. So we've talked about psychoanalysis. Um, we've talked about how to confront and dissolve anxiety. Uh, we've talked about what to learn from the natural world in this moment, what the potential is in this moment to create a better world, and so on and so forth. So please go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib if that sounds worthwhile to you. Again, it's every night except Tuesday nights because uh, Tuesday is the day that the podcast comes out. And next week, um, there'll be some more, well, there'll be another uh, episode that's uh, remotely recorded, but there'll be sort of more coverage that's related a little more directly to <laughs> our moment. And the, the episodes after that, I'm sure, will be as well. But uh, I do still think that this conversation with Liz uh, gives us a kind of pathway into thinking about things now that couldn't be more relevant. Um, but beyond it just being relevant, Liz is just awesome, and her books are great. And I love this conversation, and I'm very excited to share it with you. All right, here we go. 
Hey, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Abib, and I'm very excited to be here with you, Liz Nugent. Hello. Hello. You're very welcome. <laughs> I'm very excited to be on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, so let's just get right into it. <laughs> okay. So I was thinking about um, death a lot, of course, when I was reading <laughs> your books, and particularly I was reading the new one, um, Our Little Cruelties, and I was thinking about how some there's a moment where the characters are processing death. Well, there are actually multiple moments where the characters are processing death, but one of them has a relative die and he's just kind of like, yeah, yeah people die all the time, you know? And then again, September 11th comes up at a certain point mm -hmm. and he's like, well, it's just the end the other, another character is like, it's just the end of capitalism, you know? And this enrages, um, his siblings, his siblings. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of thinking, about how we don't forgive people who take death lightly, right? And so there's like kind of a tension between how much you're supposed to care. Because if you're also, if you're grieving for like 30 years or something like that nonstop, people also like, you know, chill the fuck out, right? But also we want people to have a healthy relationship to it. So it's just like just enough like care about death or something like that. <laughs> And I was yeah. thinking about those moments, you know, as we as I went into this new novel. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there is a set amount of grieving that one has to do or one can do or one should do. I think it's different for everybody, but I, I do know that in in countries where where life is cheap, my my brother does um charity work in, in Zambia. He goes out to Zambia every year. And every year, the, I think the life expectancy, when he certainly when he started going out maybe 15 years ago, was 35. That was the age at which you died, mostly of AIDS. Um, um, but uh, so life, because everybody died and died so often and so young, grief was not a big thing because you were expected to die. So people didn't grieve, they just got on with things. Mm -hmm. And I think in societies here where, you know, we're really expecting to live well into our 90s now. So when somebody dies, grief is really only um, really taken seriously if it's a young person. Mm -hmm. You know, when an older person dies, it's not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. If people die in a way where they're when they're older, that the statistics somehow make us nervous, then there's a different kind of like collective anxiety response to it, right? So, like, if old people die, you know, in numbers, <laughs> yeah. then then you know, suddenly it, it overwhelms us in a certain kind of way. But I think I was more kind of aiming to then you have these characters in the book where where we see it tip over in, in all your books where we see the attitude of death tip over into a kind of either satisfaction with murder or a kind of com maybe a complacency or whatever it is uh, yeah. of a job well done where the attitude towards death actually turns toward being okay with being an active participant yeah well we're we're talking about murder now, which is yeah for um yeah no no real guilt is felt, but probably because 
the character doesn't discuss it, you know, so he doesn't get to express it. But I think, and the book sort of ends at that point, so we never really get to know, although we do get to know that, oh God, it's so hard to, to talk about our little cruelties without spoilers, but we do get to know that, um, yeah, that there, there, there are massive consequences. There are massive consequences for for the generation. Consequences, and I'm think I'm thinking about, um, but also I'm thinking about Lydia. Is it you know in yeah um, in Lion and Wait, and I'm also thinking of Oliver and Unraveling Oliver. Not so much. I mean, Delia and Skin Deep is a sort of singular case. We can talk <laughs> about her, but um, I mean, I think you know these these characters who are. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that they're responsible for horrific crimes um, in these books because they happen right off the bat in, yeah. both, in both those books. So there's Usually no spoilers the there. Page. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but I'm thinking about the the attitude there of I feel, you know, I feel okay with it. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever it is, it's uh, it's this. It, I don't know. Is it just the murder? Like deciding to take place, or I'm sorry, deciding to um, take part in the death. That's the problem. Um, like, is it their attitude towards death overall that leads into the ability to like actually I, kill people? I I have this feeling, and I'm I've, I've sort of made plans um, to meet up with a murderer soon. I won't name him, and I can't I can't talk about it because it may not happen. But I have. <clears throat> plans to meet up with a murder, a notorious murder, Irish murder. Um, and I'm not going to meet him by myself. There will be other people there. <laughs> so I'm going to make sure I'm safe. But I want to look into his eyes. I've met him once before. I want to look into his eyes and see if he has a soul. Because I believe that the act of murdering somebody must fracture something within you. And I think murders, by their nature, must be different to the rest of us. They must be. I mean, I, do, I, I used to dream about murdering people all the time. Um, I, and I, th those dreams have disappeared since I started writing about them. But I used to regularly dream about murdering people. And the anxiety and the, and, and the guilt and the, the horror of realizing what I'd done was so overwhelming in those dreams. I'd wake up in a sweat, you know. But um yeah, then I just wrote it out wrote it out and those dreams stopped. <laughs> but I do think that murders um are separate from the rest of us in that way. Okay, so there's a lot there <laughs> to talk about. But so when you say you dreamed about it, what do you have an idea of where those dreams were sort of welling up from or um, an idea of what, if it's a reoccurring dream, like how did you interpret no, that before you started dream. writing about it? Um, I think, I think I was always scared of being murdered when I was a kid because we had a creepy next door neighbor who, um, who threatened us all at knife point when I was a child. And, and then he, you know, another time he was, he was found climbing up the drain pipe, trying to 
tried to spy on whoever was in the bathroom and he stole clothes off our washing line and used to try them on in the greenhouse, like particularly women's underwear, <laughs> like my mother's and my sister's underwear and stuff. And uh, I, I always thought that he might murder us. And I think that got under my skin some way, you know, so I kind of thought that murder was always a possibility. Mm. Well, and I suppose, you know, in your dream, since it's all you, you're also mm. the victim in your dream, yeah. you know, even if you've sort of externalized the victim as someone else, I mean, it's still in your own thoughts. So you're the victim and the murderer, which does help you to write um, mystery novels. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe actually, maybe that's the case. I never, I, I don't really believe in dreams as meaning anything. I think they're just things that throw up whatever in your subconscious, but I don't think so. But when you say that, it actually makes makes sense because if you are, if in my dream I am the murderer and the victim, maybe that overwhelming sense of 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 stress is also grief for myself. You know, it could well be. I don't know. I haven't killed myself yet, so <laughs> or anybody else. Only in your dreams. <laughs> yeah, only in my dreams. Yeah. Well, and so then I'm thinking about this meeting with somebody who's murdered people and you know what the the first question is you know we can we can obviously see people have been traumatized by killing people in the military right so um who have killed other people or people yeah. tried to kill them and, under orders yes and something sure. something has something's changed in them very often as a result of that experience so you're saying you think that people who are murderers might not have had the soul from the start or when you when you look into them or are you saying that as a result of having murdered as somebody, a result it's yeah. led them somehow yeah mm. yeah yeah I, like i think of all those soldiers who come back from iraq or came back from vietnam or wherever you know and actually it's easier for them now because they can bomb from afar and they don't actually have to see the results but if you're actually facing a man with a gun and shooting him in the head and seeing the results of that i think I think that must do something to you. Because otherwise, the way it's done now, it's like a computer game. So you don't, you're not up and close and personal with the results. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think that there's some sort of like, it's important to keep these things on a kind of continuum and also see their distinctions at the same time. So, well, sure, the person who, you know, is killing someone who's been designated a com an enemy combatant for them, mm. like... The person who is their victim, for lack of, well, that's actually the right word, um, has been sort of framed for them by this sort of bigger, you know, yeah. force and these this other institution of people. But if you murder somebody for whatever psychosexual reasons or out of jealous rage or whatever it might be, like you framed who that person is on your own for you've yourself. Justified, you've justified the reason and you've yeah. rationalized, you know. I think Oliver in Unraveling Oliver says <clears throat> she should not have provoked me. I think Lydia says the lying tramp deserved it, you know, in the first line. Right, um, the first line. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Cordelia's just a sort of a drunken mess, so she doesn't really know 
she it's like she's so far gone by the time that murder happens that she doesn't really even know what she's done or you know she just knows she has to get away yeah <laughs> well okay and so then i suppose you know the last part of <laughs> there was so much in that comment about sitting across so i mean i I think certain people who are serial killers, for instance, there there really does seem, I mean, you can see why like people would be tempted to come up with like possession narratives for them, you know, that they're possessed or something like that. Like if you see these, um, you know, like this uh, Jeffrey Dahmer used to like have these kinds of spasms and like throw himself around like grunting and making these noises to impress his friends and then at a certain point he couldn't stop doing them you know and then when people broke into his where he was living and found all the bodies they found all these weird like altar pieces of like body parts and that sort of stuff and obviously we can think of other silicos but show me a serial killer who had a happy childhood right <laughs> you can't really they don't exist no they don't exist or, but also like it seems like like there's, you know, like a cuckoo lays its egg in the nest of another bird and that sort of pushes. And like when the baby cuckoo is born, it pushes the other baby mm -hmm. birds out of the nest, you know, mm -hmm. and it seems like that's something that happens in people's souls. Like after they kill or they engage or something, it's almost like something's forced the rest of it out. And that's all that's there is this new kind of bird or something like that, you know? Maybe. Yeah. So, well, good luck to you with... <laughs> <laughs> with all the murder. With, Good luck with, with all with the murder. Yeah, exactly. Um, Thank you. Well, so I was also thinking about, like, you know, with murder, you know, the way. So, uh, okay, I think I can talk about this. So, in our little cruelties, there's a moment where one of the primary characters, one of these three brothers, is just really, really shitty to this woman that works for him. I mean, just mm -hmm. horrible. But. See, interestingly, it's because, I've seen that woman. Yes, yeah. I, I, I we can t <laughs> maybe talk about that because I've heard you talking about that in interviews before, um, with hints to <laughs> who the boss was. But, um, but I was thinking, like, you know, since you know a murder's coming in a book, it tends to somehow diminish the presence of the other horrible things that people do. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, the, the people who do, most people who do horrible things, like outside of murder, there's lots of people who do shitty things their entire lives and live happily ever after and get away with it. Right. You know, I mean, I was really surprised Harvey Weinstein was found guilty. I was really surprised because I expected him not to. Because justice so rarely happens in those cases. But, you know, he's checked himself into a nice hospital now. So who knows if he'll go to prison or if he'll get a doctor's note saying, too sick to go to prison. He'll just have to stay in a luxury hospital. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. We've come not to expect justice. Right. And and as part of that, you know, I think we've we still have this idea that if someone is murdered, the murderer will be caught. Right. Mm. And in some ways, <laughs> then we're like, so if nobody else is caught for any of the other crimes, it's fine. I mean, that's kind of how things play out also in a lot of thriller novels, a lot mm. of mystery novels, like because the murder, the killing, even before, you know, cause 
but by the point I saw that scene in in our little cruelties, I haven't gotten to the point where I know all the details about you know if there's a murder or not. I just know it's one of your books, so there will be definitely a murder. You know, <laughs> Someone's going to die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I'm just you know I'm just sort of thinking that's the the mystery novel is like kind of ma- you know match or mirror reality in that way where the presence of the murder tends to diminish the severity and the intensity of the other crimes and the ones that the one that we really want to see sort of resolved or solved or fixed or whatever is the the murder at the center of it and we do that in our culture too i guess yeah well we try but uh yeah they don't always get caught no, no, and the murderers don't get caught either. No, no. <laughs> well, and you did say once that why why people read mystery is because he, he yeah. said this in an interview because people like to you know solve like they like things to be solvable, and I was like, but those problems aren't solved in your books. No, <laughs> so, but but I do yeah. believe that people generally like crime fiction is really popular because the bad guy gets caught, whereas in reality. The bad guy is president of the United States. You know, that's that's a fact. The bad guy is prime minister of Britain. You know, the bad guy, you know, this is what happens to the bad guys in reality. Um, so uh, people look to crime novels to for justice. I just happen to be one of those crime novels that doesn't give them that kind of justice. But there always is some kind of consequence if you like for 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 the murder there's a there's a consequence and a payoff and in the case of little cruelties yes they may the murderer may have got away with with that but he you know at the end of it that payback is coming in the form of the next generation yeah and you you always show the way that uh, an atrocity kind of unravels and ripples out into many people's lives. It's almost, it's, it is almost a little bit like Alice Munro. I don't think you've maybe got Love that comparison before, but it no. is like that where, I mean, you do a generational sort of thing very often where like her, you show people developing through time and also you spread out, you know, but it, but it happens to be something, you know, rather, even though it happens rather melodramatic in the case because it's it's a killing um in in some cases a you know a real a serious crime with her it might be a turn on just sort of maybe something two people said to each other at you know a picnic or something like yeah, that yeah. but um but you do show the consequences I mean, the consequences are always affecting people who wouldn't even necessarily be like like involved or even close to the situation at all, but you can see it ripple and ripple yeah, and ripple. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, every what is it? Every action has an equal and opposite. Every what is that the philosophy thing? Yeah, every yeah. action <laughs> has an equal and opposite reaction. Or I think so. Yeah. Um, I'm getting that completely wrong. You'd have to ask my husband, the boffin, but um. There is, um, there are consequences to all of our actions, and we might we might think we've got away with something, or you might think that, um, you know, it like buying cocaine. Yeah, you know, I I know some cocaine users, and uh, I'm I'm not 
that way inclined myself. But uh, I hate, I hate the business that that you know it supports and the lives lost and the absolute, um, you know that kid who was murdered and dismembered, you know, all all for all for, all in the name of drug dealing, mm-hmm. you know. And you might think, oh, I only smoke a little grass or whatever, but it's all it's all coming from the same pot. It's all coming from those those same uh criminals who do heinous things mm-hmm. to each other and, you know, exact absolutely horrific revenge on people who cross them. So, you know, you have to take responsibility for that. If you're going to do that stuff, you, you then you're part of that game. Yeah. And then, you know, I think that the, <laughs> it, it ends up also being the focus for so many people about, you know, drug dealers and that kind of violence and all that. But of course the same is true for our phones, you know, and our computers and the manufacturing of our, of, you know, whatever. So how do we, you know, take responsibility for those things is a, is a question. Well, the coronavirus might take care of all of them (laughs) for us because, you know, I believe there's a coming shortage of iPhones because, because of, the, you know the factories in China having that make some of the component parts having had to be closed down, and a lot of electronics um, are going to be in short supply, and a lot of foodstuffs are going to be in short supply. And you know, I mean, if it if if it does turn out to be a thing, I yeah, I think we're going to have to look again about how we live live our lives. And I think it's no harm. And I think it's you know, epidemics come along. It's usually, I think, every 100 years a pandemic, you know, that wipes out swathes of the population. And if I'm lucky enough to survive, I think we are really going to, I mean, if this turns into a big one and if we survive, we are going to have to look again about sustainability and about, you know, growing our own food and shopping local and buying local and and living in smaller communities instead of in these massive cities like Dublin has tripled in size since I was born. Mm-hmm. The population is just booming and, you know, the outskirts of Dublin have reached into all of the surrounding counties and they're going out further, you know, it's impossible to buy anywhere in Dublin because it's too expensive. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think we we're really going to, it's, it's about time. And this, <laughs> this, this coronavirus might, might be, might be something that actually saves the planet rather than devastates it. Well, of course, it's not yeah. going to seem that way to the people who <laughs> die right, as a result. Save it for them. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I mean, I think it is like what, what it should do for us, because I mean, from what I can tell, it ends up being sort of, you know, I mean, without focusing on coronavirus too much, I, know, I, know, I, I think that, I think that like, <laughs> yeah. And who knows like what it's going to be like when this airs, you know, in a few weeks or whatever. But mm-hmm. I just think like, what you're saying is true at its, you know, sort of fundamental level. Um, it's really important. 
that we look at the ways that we're interconnected and look at the ways that we disservice each other. Like people are freaking out about coronavirus. I mean, first of all, there's just the panic that people will die, which is, is just not and really happening. And misinformation campaigns. Right, then- right. But then there's the panic that, oh, I have to take off of work and I can't, you know, I, like I'm not going to be able to support my family if I have to take off from work. Um, how are we going to access public transportation? Do we have enough medical care? All those things are actually, if you just take, coronavirus out of it. And you're like, people are worried about not being able to pay for to take care of their kids. They're worried about working too many hours. They're worried about, um, you know, they're worried about transportation. They're worried about, you know, all these things are real problems that we have to focus on in the way that we relate to people anyway. And that causes so much anxiety about this kind of stuff, you know, rightfully so, like the economic conditions of people's lives, you know. And so, and the interconnectedness of all our economic conditions. And so you have this one thing happen where it's like 0.0001% of the world's population or something mm-hmm. gets this thing that kills 2% of them. And everybody loses their mind partially because of the way that we're interconnected. And you don't want to respond to that like just assholes and you know conspiracy theorists who are like, keep the immigrants out. They're going to bring the coronavirus here, right? But you do have to nevertheless have a response in some way to like, how are we interconnected and how do we deal with this kind of interconnectedness, you know, and like we're all tied together. And that, to me, that's actually really heartening because it's like, okay, we're all in it together. Now what do we do, you know? <laughs> um, but I, I don't know that we can see our way through that well <laughs> right <Yeah>. now. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, we've been told to wash our hands, but I mean, <laughs> you know, I think, as you say, there are so many more environmental and you know climate change you you know social anxiety just social anxiety has never been higher you know in in a first world country where you know people are supposedly richer and yet they're not because you know the 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 divide between rich and poor certainly in my lifetime in ireland has as just vastly um uh enlarged the the i'm saying this wrong i'm a writer i'm supposed to have the words i've lost the words but you know what i mean the gap has widened between rich and poor exponentially in my lifetime and uh yeah we're becoming more like america in that way and that that uh that's not a comfortable thing you know i mean I, i was in san francisco 20 years ago and then I was there again last year, and I was shocked at the difference, really shocked at the, at, at the difference that had happened in 20 years. I mean, 20 years ago, there, there were homeless people who who hung out down in the Mission District, and I was kind of used to seeing them, and, um, and, the, and this time when I went back, there were actually tented cities all along the highways, on the approach into San Francisco, and I had never seen that before. And actually, um, Rachel Kushner, I don't know whether you're mm-hmm. f- familiar with her book, with the, the Mars, Mars Room, room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She writes so brilliantly about that underclass of people um, in, in San Francisco and, you know, how they get along and how they drift from one thing to the next and inevitably end up in trouble because poverty seems to be criminalized in America. Like it's, it seems to be, if you're poor and particularly if you're black, you're going to end up in prison and then you're going to be, 
you're going to end up as slave labor for some corporation because the prison is owned by a corporation. And, you know, um, that terrifies me. That hasn't happened here yet, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if that was the future because the direct provision stuff is all handled for, I suppose, for your American listeners, direct provision is where we put immigrants who we haven't yet classified as residents or haven't yet deported from the country. But, you know, there are people who are living in direct provision centers, which are sort of like hotels, I suppose. Well, they're hostels with a with a central kitchen and, you know, there's curfews and they're not allowed to come and go freely and they get like a a few pence per day few cents per day to live on and you know their their children go to the local schools but you know they're very identifiable by the fact that they live in these extremely poor conditions and those direct provision centers are are um, managed by corporations who make massive profits so there are profits in poverty you know yeah i i mean essentially it's a way of imprisoning people for not being Irish enough, like in a weird way, like it's yeah. a nationalistic, you know, um, it's a stain on our character. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, that, that newer Donald Ryan book, I think explores some of that a, a bit, right? What is it? The offer in the show from a low and quiet sea. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah really yeah. beautifully. It's um, yeah. One of my favorite books of all time. Yeah, oh, really? Is yeah. It really? <laughs> Donald's a good friend. He's, oh, okay. uh, he and his wife are, are just, yeah, yeah, he's some great... of the nicest people I've met. Have you interviewed him yet? No, not yet. No, oh. I, have, I, I have to read more of his. He has, you know, more. I have to read the rest of his books and then reach I have out, them upstairs. You know, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have no. Donald upstairs? Uh, well, yeah. no. <laughs> Donald, by the way. Uh, uh, um, yeah, I think, yeah, he, he has a particular collection of short stories, which I think you'll really, really enjoy. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, he's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, all this like inner, it, so it's really interesting because in Skin Deep, the main character, Delia, she, she says something or in, inwardly says, you know, like, uh, I don't think love is useful. Right. And it, it's actually one of the, like the most brutal moments out of all the things that happen in your books. It's actually one of the most brutal moments because, so this is a character for people who haven't read the book and really read all of Liz's books. Um, and, and Skin Deep, this character has grown up on an island uh, off the coast of Ireland with her father. They're very, very bonded, very much. Actually, they love each other very deeply. Um, but that's the only person she's ever loved in her life. But it's so interesting because as she becomes sort of untethered from him and for, through a series of events, and she can't love anybody else. She can't have that connection with anybody else, nor could he really, you know. Um, but mm -hmm. she can't have that connection with anybody else. And so she really just kind of moves people around in the way that it suits her. In some ways, it's heartbreaking. Some She, she has hopes that she'll be connected to people, but it never quite attains that status of connectivity for her. And so you can see, like, actually, <laughs> in all the sort of terrible things in the world that we're talking about, why love is actually so important and useful. Because if you sort of pull that out, 
then all you have is how do I get this person to get me what I want? How can I move this person around to produce the intended effect? Whereas love is something completely different. And a lot of the characters in your books, the really bad ones, they have a really... They're all pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm thinking of people like, uh, you know, Alice and, you know, like in Unraveling Oliver, like I'm thinking of some of the more victim characters, you know. Yeah, they're not all monsters. Yeah, or Barney or whatever. But I'm just thinking like the real bad ones, they have a really distorted concept of love as well. It's yeah. not just an urge to murder. It's not just whatever. No, it's they're, love they're, is shattered they're, for they're, them. Yeah, they, they are all in their own ways incapable of loving in a holistic way. Our Little Cruelties is a little different because it's a family story, whereas the, in the other books, all of the characters are quite isolated and estranged from their families for different reasons. But, um, yeah, uh, sorry, what was the question? I was asking about their sort of shattered sense of Oh, yeah, their incapability of of loving. And it's usually, in, in nearly all of the books, it goes back to their childhoods, to some one event in their childhoods, like in in Delia's case, she lost her family in one fell swoop. And she thought, I mean, it's not much of a spoiler to say because it happens early in the novel. She thought when she was a child that she she and her dad were going to run away from the rest of the family and live happily ever after because, you know, she didn't much care for the rest of her family, for her mom or her brothers. And neither did her father. They were just kind of devoted to each other and not in a romantic, pervy way. They they actually had a, a, an extraordinary close bond, bond, but not for the reason. You don't find out till the end that it's not for the reason that Cordelia thought it was. And she never really gets to understand because she's so far gone psychologically and mentally that she w- she could never understand the real reason for why her father loved her so much. And it's really warped. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think that that's, you know, as an antidote to murder, <laughs> you would cultivate a, a sensibility of love in yourself, you know, for, for others, even people who seem somewhat insignificant, you know, mm. I mean, it's so much, I'm not trying to use your novels necessarily as, a teaching device or whatever for how to live, because that would be maybe a bad idea. But it might be how not to live, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then you get you get you get characters like Barney and Eugene oh, yeah. in Unraveling Oliver who epitomize love. You know, they can't do anything else but love, and yet, in some way, Barney being being the being the older and the more uh, mentally capable I suppose of of the two um he loses out but he kind of wins in the end you know he is left with somebody to love and to take care of and to have fun with and you know there is a bond between the two of those characters, you know? Yeah, it's occurring to me, oh God, I really want to say who, but I won't say who, but it's occurring to me that that's the negative image of two people by the end of 
line in wait. So I'll just okay. Yeah, <laughs> did you see? Yes, it's yes. like the total negative. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, you know, didn't I must- think of that. You're <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> I, there's this movie um, called uh, Martha. Have you ever seen this movie by no. Fassbender? It's an extraordinarily cruel movie. It's is really Fassbender in it, or is Fassbender the director? Oh, the director. Yeah. Okay. Although he's in a bunch of his movies, he's one okay. of my very favorite directors. Very melodramatic movies, but um, it's it, it's this movie about a man who's like his he and his wife fall in love like instantly, but it's a very bizarre love. You don't understand why they fall in love. She's very sort of cut off, kind of emotionally in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. But he starts to gaslight her like progressively through the movie and she falls more and more deeply in love as this happens until there's a tragedy um, where she has an accident and, you know, concludes with him being her caretaker for the rest of her life. And it's so horrible, but it's this amplified version of everything else that's happened Yeah, in that the movie. sounds a little familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I, I was thinking of that. I'm glad I haven't seen the movie because then I could be accused of a little plagiarism. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure there, there are other stories like that, but I think also, you know, I was thinking about Cal also by Bernard McLavity when I read Lion and Wait, like this idea of yeah. meeting somebody that actually has a connection to you that you don't know and and falling in love and so but that I mean that's one of the great things about your books is they send me in a lot of directions to comparisons but they don't ever land there neatly so for instance like people compare you to Patricia Highsmith a lot and there is definitely a tonality there and she's my one of my very favorite writers you know mm-hmm. up there with I mean everybody you know James Joyce and Joy Williams and these sorts of but she her novels are always about two people that love each other so much that they hate each other or they yeah. hate each other so much that they love each other. They're totally entangled emotively. Your books aren't really about that. Exactly. You might have these characters that are really in love with each other and they don't know how to handle it, but not quite. There's always other motivations there. There's always something else and a kind of deep self-interest that's going on for you know this sure. or that character yeah. that doesn't unravel in this Highsmith way. So I just bring that up to say like, the comparisons are good, but they don't ever fit, you know, comfortably. No, no. Yeah, I I've, uh, I, don't know where I got it from. I mean, I just start with the character and, I mean, that that's in all my novels, I start with the character and the inspirations come from all kinds of different places. I mean, the inspiration for Our Little Cruelties was watching this um Watch this uh, clip. It's on YouTube. You can find it of Nina Simone at the Montreux Festival. I I don't know what year it was, 1980s, 70s. And she's out of her mind on whether it's drink or drugs. And she starts to sing Stars by Janicean. And she interrupts the song to tell somebody in the audience to sit down. And she's like, sit down, sit down. And then she forgets the lyrics of the song. And the lyrics of the song are extremely poignant because they're about the passing of celebrity. They're about the fleetingness of celebrity. And I just found that that actual clip. If you look it up, I urge all of your listeners. I'll put it in the show notes, yeah. Yeah. Look up, look up Nina Simone stars Montreux. It's M O N T R E A U X, I think. Um, uh, you will see 
this performance that she gives that is absolutely riveting. It mm. is riveting from beginning to end because she starts off, you know, quite funny and she's looking for David Bowie in the audience and she's kind of disappointed that David Bowie hasn't shown up because he's her friend. And so, you know, she's she starts off singing the song kind of upset because David Bowie hasn't turned up and she had expected him to be there. But maybe she had no arrangement to meet him. We don't know because she's so out of her mind at this stage. And then she goes into singing the song and I just kind of thought, oh my God, celebrity is such a dangerous, dangerous thing. And that that's where the book kind of started for me, you know. Yeah, because there's one of the characters ends up, well, a few of them, but one of them particularly ends up having a pretty high celebrity status. Mm. It's interesting because also in that book, maybe towards the center, there's a huge concert in Ireland, the Bob Dylan concert. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was, was there. there and all, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's really- I was really, 15. I think I, I, th I think I was a year older than the boy okay. who tells the story <laughs> well, of being there. It's a great, that whole- that whole scene was fantastic. And I don't even, I mean, I don't even <laughs> love Bob Dylan. Like, I mean, I actually love Bob Dylan as a songwriter, but his voice bothers me just like it bothers me. Well, that's why I have the father yeah, saying, say, who is that guy? Does he have a, does a he have a sinus problem? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, I think something that I really love about that is, so when the characters gets into a kind of scuffle at the concert, and it's this huge kind of like pleasurable, amazing event, and things could have gone so many much more pleasant ways for the characters. But after, it's just kind of a, a quick paragraph that you throw in about uh, people who died, like yeah. trying to swim across, across the, the Boyne River, yeah, river to right. get into the concert. And also... Um, people just being high and like fucked up out of their minds, you know, at the hospital or whatever, um, having OD'd. And I was just thinking like, do you have a kind of view that pleasure always is like coupled with tragedy? Like, is it always tethered in that way, at least in your art, but maybe also I'll ask you this, like something's, you know, <laughs> lying in wait, <laughs> something's like waiting for us. Like, is it always like, uh, is it always a bad move to let your shoulders down? Do you know what I mean? Well, I'm always on my guard. You are. I I, I have to say, but I I think I think it definitely works in fiction, you know, to to put tragedy very close to to celebration. You know what I mean? To put something, and, and um, Kevin Barry does this brilliantly. I listen to your podcast with him. Oh. He he's brilliant at putting tragedy right beside something of extreme hilarity where you're absolutely laughing your ass off and then suddenly something catastrophic and dark and awful happens. Right. I think I said you to know? him on that episode something like, your fiction is like lying next to bed and someone like, like you're next to bed, you're like totally comfortable. <laughs> and then your lover takes out a knife. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who's pleased with that description? Yeah, no, I think that's good. But um, uh, I, I, I always expect, you know, like I've, I've won three awards for my novels. In fact, I've won six awards for writing in general. Um, and every time I win an award, I, I, I glance nervously around me because I expect that something awful is going to happen. And at the moment, my dad 
you know, this book is coming out. I don't know whether it's going to do well or not. I, I hope it does, but, you know, I I have no expectation. I, in in some ways, I think I, de- I deserve a, a failure because the other three books have done so well. I kind of think, well, this is the one that's, you know, everybody's going to hate. Um, but I, I, I won't have any idea until it comes out. But you know, my dad isn't well. He's he's dying, um, and that's tough. And you know, there's a lot of other stresses which I won't go into in my life. My my physical uh, self. I've just spent three months in the hospital, and you know, I have tough physiotherapy, a lot of pain, a lot of you know, anxiety about other things that are happening in my life. So I I you know. I think it's uh, success is all su- success is 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 I never get too excited about winning prizes or and and it's not that I'm not grateful for them I'm extremely grateful extremely grateful especially when it's a public vote and people have voted for me and I'm so so grateful but I don't um you know, I'm not dancing a jig about it. Not that I can dance, but you know, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I don't get too hung up on it because uh, you know, I, I'm just worried about what's going to happen next. That I, that there will be some payback for this. There's that something awful is going to happen, <laughs> and like generally, it hasn't happened. You know, but um, yeah, it like this year has been a very difficult year for me personally. And um, the end of last year. So, um, yeah. It, Let's change the subject. Yeah, yeah. I'll probably cry. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I mean, yeah, let me sort of move it away from there. I mean, I think that there's something about the way in which we attach these kinds of things together, right? Like someone might say, yeah, my book came out. I won some awards. And then, like, also, like, I had this and this and this bad thing happen in yeah, here, right? Yeah. But some of us, and I do this, like, we bind, we bind them together. We're like, well, this happened, so now this is going to happen. Right? Yeah, sure. Like, it's this way of sort of doubling things, and that's a, that's kind of I struggle with that all the time. Like, I just got some good news about something that I'm trying to publish, you know, the other day. This book, this novel that I wrote. And immediately, I'm looking forward to that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope. Well, you know, but see, this is, and then I'm like, well, 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 well. No, wait, wait, wait. You know, like yeah, I'm already like You're even already in the casual way yourself. that I speak, yeah. I'm like, like immediately, I thought of all the problems that could come up because of that, and you know, I work really hard to try to dispel that kind of anxiety because sure. I don't. It's not. It's not useful. But I also, in some ways, I think it's like, um. I, yeah, I don't know why I've created those connections for myself. I mean, it's hard not to, of course. Like, if you have a book coming out and you have, you know, someone that you love being sick, it's like, of course the two things, like, if mm. they're in the same timeline, they yeah. seem to bond together. Because you know in the future that one will evoke the other as I well. Know. You know? I'm just, like, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I'm... I'm it, I'm really sad that my dad will never get to read this book, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and he won't, you know, I'm just, I'm glad that I dedicated the last book uh, to him, specifically to him. So the last book he read of mine was for him. 
um, because he was the first person to take me to the library and he was the person who introduced me to the world of books. And, you know, when my parents separated when we were quite, when I was quite young, um, you know, and my dad would have custody of me or what, what you call it, visiting rights or whatever. And he'd have me on a Saturday and our favorite thing to do as dad and kid was go to the library and we would, you know, hang out in the library and we'd pick books and we'd sit down in armchairs and we'd, you know, we'd read for like an hour or something and then go get ice cream or whatever. But, you know, it was a real, it was a bonding time, you know, and he's read all his life. I mean, he's, he's, he's a, you know, if he's, he leaves his house to go to AA meetings and the library. You know, and now he's got to the stage where he's in a nursing home and not alone does he not leave his house, he can't leave his bed. And, you know, that's 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 sad for me. When my mom died, you know, I remember reading, I would, <laughs> I would sit next to her because she was in hospice care in my, in, in well, in her house. I was in college, mm. but I came home and stayed for a long time. I was 24 and I sat next to her. And I read, it was the worst fucking book ever. It was <laughs> that book, Pay It Forward. Do you know, do you remember that movie, Pay It Forward? And anyway, this is the book sort of based on, it's a very like, actually, maybe it's a great book and I'm dissing this author for no reason, but she apparently- Is it one of those chicken soup for the soul bullshit? Basically, oh, but it's God, like- I hate but those. It, yeah, but it yeah. was like a novel, you know, and I, I, you know, she'd started reading it before she just couldn't even read anymore so she died slowly over a long period of time and well, then she was that's just sort a of nice thing you out did of it then. yes i would that's sit nice and read thing it you, did. you read her, her book yeah i finished it and she actually died the day after i finished it oh. but um I also remember thinking, God, this is the last book she's ever going to finish. <laughs> like, I remember sort of thinking that. You so, something so sometimes, about. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure your father would like our little cruelties too, but well, maybe skin deep about a, about a, a father and a daughter. It's like, you know, maybe he likes that one more. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know because, you know, his mind's been going for quite a while. So I, I don't know, even know whether he got skin deep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the father-daughter relationship in that book was so screwed up that I hope, <laughs> I hope that the reason he never talked to me about it was because his mind is going, and not because he thought that I was identifying that relationship with mine and his, because that certainly wasn't the case. I mean, they liked each other. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was thinking too about that, like that doubling, like, oh, something good happened something bad is going to happen like the thing about you know when i was making movies like i look back on some of the pictures of myself and i had like six pack abs i'm just yeah. like that. and during when i was making that i was like you fat piece of shit like i would think that about myself so like the good thing would rise up and immediately like i could it was this distorted so it's almost like just like there's body dysmorphia there's like success dysmorphia or something like that where you just can't look into the mirror of your own life and your career path and stuff and see it there's, for there's what it is there's a great um uh, michael revoltham is a uh, an australian uh, novelist and he ghost wrote uh, jerry halliwell's uh, book Jerry Halliwell from Spice Girls, and he goes through it. That's one book. you didn't have to explain to my yeah. listeners. Okay, they know who she is. Uh, Ginger Spice, but he goes through one of her book, one of her books, and there's a scene in it um, 
where she describes being at Wembley Stadium. I think it might have been at, you know, the the 20th anniversary of Live Aid or something like that. It was some massive concert anyway, and they had, you know, sold out Wembley. I think it was Wembley Stadium, so there would have been 60,000, 80,000 people there. And she comes out and she's singing her song, and the crowd are going absolutely wild. And there's one guy standing in the middle of the field giving her the finger, you know, standing there, just staring at her, giving her the finger. And she said afterwards that he's the only audience member of all of the audience members who she ever saw in her entire career. And she must have seen, like, probably, you know, if she was doing those kind of stadium tours and everything, she probably was in the presence of a million people over the course of her career. And that's the only audience remember member she she ever remembers. Is that one guy standing there giving her the bird? Is that what you call it in America? Giving her the bird. Just the finger. Yeah. 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 I mean in some ways in, in that way, like just, these these shitty events in our lives. I remember this... my worst reviews. I don't remember the good ones. Of course. You know? Of course, yeah. And then we tend to remember like, yeah, like the the course of our lives, we'll remember these huge tragedies. You know, it's like in some ways, those are the event version of like the person giving us the finger. You know what I mean? When it's sure. like, I could focus on all the people. That, and I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to be like, just live in the thing that's good, you know, really, really live in it. Um, which often irritates people around you when you do mm. that, you know, because then they think you're just being sort of new agey and you're like, no, this is actually necessary for my happiness, like to focus on the things that were good, you know. But um, so, yeah, I guess I, like there's so much else to talk about, but maybe we'll sort of just turn to this and then and kind of end on this note. Although I really want to talk about bodies with you because I was thinking about how, especially in line with weight, line and weight, like nobody knew what to do with the body. Like, I mean oh, the yeah. body, like the oh, corpse, but I also mean the, the fat, you know, being fat and thin, being, um, yeah. being a model, um, who suddenly there's all this, you know, everything's fine if you're a model with a, you know, lingerie on, but as soon as you're a prostitute, then suddenly like everything yeah, goes yeah, out yeah. the window. Sure. Well, some people aren't fine with the, the model with the underwear on either, but just knowing like that is, that's how I would like, <laughs> like that's my secret subtitle for Lion and Wade is like, no one knows what to do with the body, you know, yeah, sure, <laughs> bodies sure. of all sorts. With our, but with their bodies. With our, with, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very conscious of I I have friends who really and people close to me who really really struggle with their weight, and I see um, how tough it is for them, and I wish for them that society would just accept fat people for who they are. Like I'm I'm kind of lucky. Like I'm I'm neither fat nor thin. I'm just kind of the way I am, and I've never really well I suppose once I hit maybe 40 I had to be a bit more careful about what I was eating but then I you know I don't I don't struggle too much I don't refuse dessert <laughs> or cake um but you know I've she seen, gave me two pieces of ginger cake before know, we started just so you, you all know the I am waiting I just want to chew into the mic <laughs> <laughs> but um i you know i just I, I i just wish society would just let people be and not judge people and i wish we could 
ban all of those magazines that put those skinny models on the front and promote, you know, people of all different shapes, sizes, colors, creeds, because, you know, this intolerance of size and shape and color, it just drives me up the wall. Because I, I'm, I'm, because of a physical disability, I walk with the limp. I, I'm on the outside too, you know. I was somebody who didn't fit in. Um, I'm somebody who still doesn't fit in in a lot of ways um, because of this physical disability. People stare at me on the street and it's not because they recognize me. It's because it's like, oh, God, look, you that lady can't walk right, you know. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 I feel um, very strongly for for people who who have that, you know, very strongly indeed. And it, and in fact, when I was writing our little cruelties, there's a character who's very body positive. She's overweight, but she's happy. And you know, I, I, um, do you know Bethany Rudder? She writes about um, body positivity and body issues and she's like a fashion icon and she's a really smart woman who writes about travel and makeup and, you know, things that are thought of as frivolous by men, but things that are actually quite important to women. Um, in the same way as like I could say football and baseball is very frivolous. Well, you know, um you know things things are that are important to men aren't necessarily important to women um and vice versa so she is a big girl and she's fabulous and i had her read a draft of that and just check and she did pull me up on one thing i had said mm -hmm. um and so i changed it uh because i realized that she was right that you know um she was just right about this certain issue. So, well, I'd love, so in, in, in Lion and Wait, there's a character, Lawrence, who s suspects his parents have having killed somebody, which is in fact true. So again, no surprise, this happens very early on in the book, but he's fat, he's thin, he's fat, he's thin again. Um, and really funny he meets, there's a lot of humor in his chapters. He meets this girl, Helen, who, they have sex very quickly mm -hmm. and she calls him fat. So she, it's not, she doesn't pull punches, but she nevertheless desires him, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that moment in the book is really f freeing. And it's also, it's funny, not because ho ha ha, you would think a fat person is attractive, but there's a kind of like, like a way in which it lets go of all the tension yeah, yeah, of yeah. how his parents treat him about his body, for instance, exactly. or whatever, you know? And just to like have the relief. But I think that there's not really a lot of places in our lives where we're allowed to sort of cultivate or push on the, the boundaries of what we desire. And what, what so what usually happens is like people will, they end up shaming you for liking the thing that everybody else likes or that we're societally conditioned. Like, oh, you only like skinny people. You only like white people. You only like this. And I was, I often think like, well, Yes, maybe people only like that. I don't only like that. I'm obsessed with doughy, sort of chubby guys who are, you know, a little older than me. <laughs> so I'm totally like, or sometimes a lot older than me. So my attraction is just <laughs> out of the norm. But, um, but I think like, you know, 
the mistake is trying to shame people for what they like rather than give them viable pathways to be able to like more and expand the boundaries yeah. of their desire. That, Let's of what push they out have. those boundaries and, you know, um, yeah, when, when, when I met and fell in love with my husband 20 years ago on Thursday. Um, Total cutie, by the way, just so you all Yeah, know. <laughs> he is. But I, I think he was probably at his fattest like he was big and uh yeah i adored him straight away so you were the helen is that what you're saying <laughs> well, well helen helen's a bit of a bitch in that book actually and she she's Sorry. kind of you know, i used i used her as a greek chorus because she's the only person she's the only person in that book who tells who tells Lawrence the truth about everything. She says, your mother's mental. You know, you need to do something about it. You need to move out. You need to, you know, she's the only person who consistently tells Lawrence the truth. Even as their paths diverge, they meet up again regularly. And, you know, she becomes a carer for his mother after a suicide, kind of a fake suicide attempt. And, you know, she, uh, she, she's, uh, yeah, she's a useful character, but, um, yeah, my husband was quite a fatty when I met him. I adored him anyway. Still do. That's and my, he, he still wavers in his weight, you know, up and down, you know. My highest compliment for a man is fatty. Like I was sometimes I will like, what? and yeah. I don't even mean necessarily fat. Like I just... Like if I'm walking w- like with someone down the street and I see a guy, I think it's hot. I'm like, oh, I'll check out the fatty. But I don't even necessarily mean that they're fat. <laughs> it's just become such a like ter- turns like in you my on. Head, just the thought of yeah, it's just like like it's like saying hottie to me is like I say fatty, you know? Yeah. But um, so <laughs> okay. So I went to a guy who looks big enough that he could throw me over his shoulder. You know, that's that's all I want. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, the thought of weight, you know, up against you is a nice feeling, I yeah, think. Yeah, absolutely. Um so okay, so <laughs> you so your first book Unraveling Oliver, I heard you say, you know, those characters are still with me and because they've been with me the longest, you know. And um I was thinking also, you know, when we write, when you write crime, when you write mystery, and also when you read it to some extent, it generates a sympathy for horrible characters, you know, but what does it, so what does it mean even to love a character? I mean, this is something that I think about all the time with books because they're not people. I mean, they're not anything. They're these mm-hmm. like weird symbols on a page that, just, sure. that hits photons and goes into our brain and constructs pictures with us and all that kind of stuff. But what does that mean to love a character? Because it's not a person. You're carrying like a, a feeling or a gesture or something inside of you all these years that you feel an affection for or an affinity for. What exactly do you mean by that? Because because I write first person narrative, I write from the point of view of those characters. Mm-hmm. I get to know them very well, and um, I think I I'm, I'm because I am them when I'm writing the characters. Of course, I like them because people generally, you know, they think they're right. They like themselves even if they're awful 
they have some rationale for why they're doing the things they're doing. So, when, yeah, it's not that I love these awful characters. It's just that when I when I write them, I am them because I have to think like them. So I'm putting myself in the mind of a sociopath, of a psychopath, and thinking, what would he do next? And usually, actually, the answer to that is to do something that a normal person wouldn't do. You know, that your re reaction is to do something outside of the norm. Um, and also, that makes the book less predictable. Yeah. I, th I think that that's, I mean, one of the most amazing things about writing fiction is not knowing what a character is going to do. So in a lot of ways, it's like a dream where it's like, well, this is in my mind, but I can still be surprised. Like that's very yeah. bizarre. So you, it's like you find, like you're saying, there are aspects of yourself you, or, 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 or a version of, your, of you as you're writing. It's like you find this version and you follow it. It's not, a, it's not like you have it all pinned down, but you're like, okay, what does Lawrence say? What does... Uh, what does William say? What does, you know, Delia say in this situation? Mm -hmm. And then it kind of like, it unfurls, well, from your fingers, I'm doing a, for people <laughs> can't see, I'm doing it as if it's coming out of my mouth, but it comes out of your, you know, the intelligence in your hands, you know, and suddenly they're saying these things, they're doing these things. And it's such a pleasure to be surprised by an aspect of your own consciousness, which should be knowable yeah, to you in yeah, some way, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's like, you know, but, and so that, <laughs> with your books in particular, is very interesting because in all of, all of them, yeah, all of them except to, to the least extent in Skin Deep, you splinter the narrative into many characters yes. and many characters' point of view. Yeah, is that because you need relief from the mood you've created with the with the sinister person? Is it because you? want to try in different parts of yourself? Like, what's happening uh, there? No, not necessarily. I think it's, it's because, like, with Unraveling Oliver, I wanted Oliver's point of view, and then I wanted the point of view of all the people who, you know, who liked him, you know, who, who kind of, he they, they really respected him, and they thought he, like most of them, Barney in particular, thought that Oliver was better than him, and that Oliver deserved to get the girl that he, you know, that he loved, but that because Oliver was better than him, he had such an inferiority complex that he thought that Oliver deserved it. And, and, and so I wanted to get the opinions of all the people who Oliver had fooled. I think in Lying in Wait, it was really important to get the point of view of um, the murderer, the victim's family and the son of the murderer mm -hmm. um really important to to see the consequences for all three of those mm -hmm. after the murder because it it the murder happens on page 1 you know so we know what's happened so but we don't know why and then when we find out why that still doesn't resolve everything you know that's 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 not the answer to to all of the problems that have been set up in the book there are, there's a lot more to play out you know um 
<laughs> There's a lot more damage to be ha- to be wreaked upon these characters, so I do that. And um, in uh, Skin Deep, it was mostly Cordelia. There's the Cordelia, yeah, right? yeah, but they're only tiny. And in 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 our little cruelties, the, the book is about three brothers, so I had to write from the point of view of the three brothers. And there are different takes on growing up, and there are different. Um, opinions on their parents on each other on their uh two of them in particular are extremely judgmental about each other's lifestyles um and one just doesn't doesn't care because he suffers from serious mental health issues and is very wrapped up in himself yeah, I like Brian the most, actually, I have to say. So we'll see, it'll be interesting to see which brother people like the most That's out funny. of that book. Yeah, I've, I've had, I've had, I've had uh, yeah, some, some early readers have, have come back to me and, yeah, they, they don't agree. They don't agree at all. Like, nobody likes William, that's for sure. But, you know, they're fighting over whether whether, whether Luke or Brian is more sympathetic. Yeah. I don't find him sympathetic. I just like him. You know, like, I found myself excited to read everything. Oh, total (laughs) asshole. Right. Yeah, sure. But I think that that's, you know, the experience of the reader is like, the same as you sort of taking on these people and letting them or these characters and letting them sort of unfold through your work of writing them as a reader it's fun to discover your affinities with terrible people sometimes Mm -hmm. you know and where they lie and why i mean reading again to bring patricia highsmith just reading ripley novels for instance why the fuck would anybody want to read this character again and again right but it becomes obvious it's like he's so compelling yes and you become very um you become complicit or you become, you need and abet him, you yeah. know, in, in you want all him, his dodges you want and so forth. Like so many people yeah. said to me about Cordelia in Skin Deep oh, totally. that, you know, <laughs> even though she's horrific and she's terrible and she, like, she destroys everybody she comes in contact with, <laughs> literally destroys them. Um, and I'm using the word correctly in this, time, <laughs> it literally destroys them. Uh, she... She, people, the readers are still rooting for her right to the end. They want her to win. Yeah, they're they're on her side, uh, and I I don't know why. <laughs> I I just tried to make her as I I guess as compelling as possible. You know. Yeah, my friend um, Anthony Jesselneck, he's a comedian, and his jokes are like they're vile. They're horrible. And he even has said, like, I think of people when they come to my comedy shows like they're going to a horror movie, not like they're coming to a comedy show, right? It's a very good joke writer. And I, I was talking about, he's like, I just like, I just try to think of like, what's the worst thing someone could do or say in a given situation? And then I make the joke out of that, right? I find him very funny. I mean, obviously, he has jokes that I think people find problematic. <laughs> but, um, but there's a sense of like, if I can just... If I can just create this, and that's what he's, it's always a character. Like he doesn't tell stories Uh about his life or, you know, he's not making real judgments on society or anything like that. They're always just very compact jokes. But I think that there's something like that um, in writing characters like this too, where it's like, well, what would a really shitty person do in this situation? Yeah. And uh, I think it's just getting to that, you know, getting to the point where, 
as a reader, I find myself in that position and aligning myself with them. I mean, it ends up being like a job really tightly wound well done. So I loved reading all your books. And oh, I I'm, can't wait to read yours. Oh, <laughs> thank I'm really you. <laughs> and I'm very excited to read whatever comes next. Although, So Our Little Cruelties comes out on what? Uh, March 26th. So it'll probably be out by the time this episode is out. So everybody go get it. And also um, two of your books in the U.S. are available on audiobook as well. Yeah. And so for people that, you know, because... Um, our Little Cruelties will be out there in November, I awesome. think around election time. So, yeah, <laughs> if you want to bury your head in the sand <laughs> and escape the horror of the election for worse horror, but more enjoyable horror... <laughs> right. Exactly. Hang <laughs> out with this other terrible family. I shouldn't describe them as horror. They're not horror. It's not no. horror. It's more like a psychological suspense kind of genre. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's thank you for writing these Great books fun. and for hanging out. Yeah. Um, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank you.